Well, good morning. I hope you enjoyed a wonderful Thanksgiving together, either with your family or friends or maybe even some extended family. I know we've got a few people who are traveling and out of town, but it's, it's wonderful to have you with us this morning and uh, to sing, to worship, to set our eyes on the hope of heaven. There seems to be, and there it really starts at a very young age, a fascination with the future. If you doubt, just think about how many times, if you're driving with little kids, they ask, are we there yet? <laughs> but it doesn't end when we're young. It continues. And think back, and I know there's not too many of you that can think back to the 70s or 80s. But for the few of you that can, you know, there were numerous publications describing why Jesus would return in this year. In fact, one pastor was uh, recalling a book he had, which was entitled, Why Christ Will Return in 1988. He got the book in 1989. Many Christians believe that the restoration of Israel in 1948 had started a clock and the world would end within two to three generations. Bible teachers cited all sorts of signs of the end of time, rising, rising numbers of earthquakes, famines, wars, the emphasis on materialism and prosperity, uh, pollution, all these things were supposed to prove the decaying effects of the world. Certain personalities and political personalities they thought represented the Antichrist or beasts of revelation. Just in case you haven't noticed, the world did not end in the 1980s. But the world or the end of the world speculation, it still continues. Today, it's actually probably more common to hear the prophetic foretellings of the end of the world from a secular world in the form of climate change or rising sea levels or severe temperatures or rogue nations trying to get nuclear weapons or biological weapons or some new global pandemic. As believers, we know that the world as we know it will come to an end. That's not a surprise. It will change. It will be transformed. But in answers to the questions of when, Jesus kind of turns the tables. Instead of answering directly the when question of his disciples, he begins to answer the who. Who will enter God's eternal kingdom? And then he begins to tell us how to prepare for that day. You see, that was much more important in Jesus' mind than the when. So I have a simple question for you this morning. It's a profound one, but it's simple. Are you ready for the end of the world? Are you ready to meet the Lord? We dipped our toes into the waters of Matthew 24, and we've studied the beginning of what is called the Olivet Discourse. It comes by its name honestly. The discourse was given on the Mount of Olives probably on the eastern side, later in the afternoon or the cool of the early evening, after Jesus and his disciples had been in Jerusalem and Jesus had been teaching in the temple and on their way out they were taking notice of how beautiful the temple and the decorations and the preparations were. And Jesus, rather than commenting on their beauty, said, a day is coming when not one stone will be left upon another. Then they had an couple-hour walk back to where they were staying near Bethany, and their minds were racing. And so when they gathered together that evening, they began to ask questions. Mark tells us that it was Peter, James, John, and Andrew who came with the questions. 
although we would assume all the disciples are gathered about listening, perhaps some of that larger contingent of disciples as well. And three of our gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that Jesus began to answer their questions. And each writer provides us a unique perspective on Jesus' answer. They all tell different aspects. There's a lot of similarities, but some different aspects of his discourse with them that afternoon or evening on the Mount of Olives. When we were last in Matthew 24, we looked at Jesus' warnings and his exhortations to his disciples in verses 4 through 14. Where he first warned them, do not be deceived. Then he told them, do not be afraid of the trials and the tribulations that are to come. And thirdly, he said, do not assume that every trial, tribulation, or distress is a sign. They are merely birth pangs that will intensify the closer we get to Christ's glorious return. We concluded in verse 14 with the encouraging promise that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the entire world and the gates of hell cannot contain it. We turn our attention to verses 15 through 28 and we'll see how far we can get this morning. And since I'm certain that you've all been diligent with your homework, been reading Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, we'll just jump right in where we left off and read verses 15 through 28 together. Matthew 24, beginning verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down and get the things out that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or in the Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So, if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, Behold, he is in the inner room, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east, flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You know, on this text, J.C. Ryle wrote, all portions of Scripture like this ought to be approached with deep humility and earnest prayer for the teaching of the Spirit. And I could not agree more. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Spirit would guide our time of study this morning as we enter into it our mind would be focused upon your glory, upon your promises, upon the hope that is found in Christ Jesus. That we would not be distracted by those things that so easily distract and entangle us, but that we would fix our mind 
and fix our eyes on the author of our salvation, who endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Help us to maintain that focus as we study this morning. Help us to see it in light of our calling to be your, mis- your preachers, your missionaries in this world. In your name, amen. Verse 15 opens with a therefore. And as many of you have learned in studying your Bible and developing Bible study habits, when you see a therefore, you look to see what the therefore is. Therefore. Jesus concluded verse 14 by noting what must happen in order for the end to come. This term of conclusion here in verse 15 seems to draw our attention to verses 13 and 14 and describe how we can recognize the end. Again, he's not answering the when question, but he is somewhat answering the question of how will we recognize the end. I actually believe this overall section of text that we began a couple of weeks ago in verse 4 through 14 and all the way now through verse 28 forms what is called a chiasm. I'll explain what that is as we over the next couple minutes. But in verses 4 through 14, we looked first at not being deceived, secondly, at not being afraid, and thirdly, when the end will come. The therefore of verse 15 marks the hinge between verses 14 and 15. And what we see is that verse 15 identifies a sign of when the end will come. Verses 16 through 22 are a reminder again that God is in control, so do not be afraid. Repeating that theme, especially with verse 22. And following that, verses 23 through 28 are another reminder to not be deceived. So in verses 15 through 28, we find the same three themes, but now they're presented in reverse order. It worked up its one way and it's working down the other. And it's a purposeful literary device called a chiasm. It's used to draw our attention. It's at the center is the primary thrust of what is being talked about, that is, the end of the world. Now, before we go any further into verses 15 through 28, I, I want us to take a step back and look up, read up, scroll up to verse 3 and the questions the disciples asked Jesus. The disciples start with, when will these things happen? Which we understand, especially in the context and the way that Matthew bunches it together to be a response to what Jesus had just said about the stones of the temple, not one being left upon the other. But then the two follow-up questions change. Change the, the nature of what's being talked about. And In fact, with what Jesus had said, there was no immediate indication that he was saying anything about his future return or his the end of time, the end of this age. And yet they asked the questions, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In fact, Matthew puts an emphasis here on the questions that are presented and the emphasis is on the return of Christ and the end of the age. Now, if you would, hold your place there. You may have already marked it because we've said we're going back there, but turn over to Luke 21 for a second. There's a slightly different emphasis in Luke. In Luke 21, 
We see those questions being asked in verse 7, but notice the questions that are asked. Here Luke presents only two of the disciples' questions. He's honing in our attention and our focus on only two of the questions. They are about these things again, that is, the destruction of the temple that Jesus referenced. And notice that there is no question of Jesus' return. They simply ask, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Luke's presentation of the Olivet Discourse then focuses upon the destruction of the temple. It's not exclusively about that. You've read it. But it emphasizes the destruction of the temple. Those are the questions that are emphasized at the beginning. And that makes further sense when you remember that the primary or who the primary audience of each of these Gospels are. I know we've got to stretch back almost three years to remember when we did our introduction of Matthew. And who is Matthew's audience? Matthew is writing to those familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures, those who were anticipating the fulfillment of much Old Testament prophecy. Matthew was likely written very early, possibly as early as 41 A.D., according to the church historian Eusebius. And if it was written that early, the early church was predominantly Jewish. And they would have had a familiarity with the promises and the prophecies concerning the Messiah in the end of the age. They would have had an expectation of that time. We see it amongst the disciples themselves. We see it all the way up till Acts 1-7 before Jesus ascends where they're still asking, is now the time, the end of the age? Luke, on the other hand, was originally written a little bit later, probably two, maybe three decades later, to a primarily Greco-Roman audience, specifically to one Theophilus. And Luke was writing to him to express the veracity the truthfulness of Jesus' words and the testimony of his life. So that Theophilus might have confidence in the ministry and the message of Christ. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the preservation of the Spirit, it's there for us as well, for, to have that same confidence, that same expectation. And so when it comes to Matthew 24 and Luke 21, keep these emphases in mind as we dive a bit further into verses 15 through 28. I trust you'll see why in a moment. Verse 15, the abomination of desolation. You knew it was coming at some point. It's important that when we consider this phrase, we consider the two words together, abomination and desolation. Daniel foretold in Daniel 9.26 that there would be many desolations. So we can't take the word by itself. Many desolations were decreed. In fact, we see back in chapter 23 of Matthew that Jesus tells the religious leaders that the temple will be left desolate in verse 38. However, as Matthew records, and Jesus is being extra specific here, there is a specific abomination of desolation to which he refers. And you can find it in Daniel. There are actually two references to an abomination of desolation in Daniel, or two different abominations of desolation, both mentioned, by the way, by Matthew. One of those is described in Matthew 9.27 and repeated in 12.11. And that's the one I believe Jesus is referring to because the second is described in Daniel 11, verse 31. And I'm going to go quickly because I don't want our attention to get too far out of Matthew this morning, but the abomination of desolation described in Daniel 11.31 takes place before the destruction 
of the second temple in 70 AD and speaks to a despicable ruler who will arise. In fact, the events and the description align amazingly well with the Seleucid Empire and one Antiochus Epiphanes who desecrated the temple around 167 BC. They align so well, in fact, that many skeptics and higher critics claim that Daniel had to have been, been written much, much later because the prophecy is too accurate. It's too specific. That's not possible. This act of abomination foreshadowed and anticipates a greater abomination of desolation found in Daniel 9.27 and 12.11. In chapter 12, we will learn that this abomination of desolation occurs during a time of great tribulation, and distress. And it happens 1,290 days into this time of distress, or almost exactly three and a half years. And it's to this future abomination that Jesus speaks in Matthew 24, 15. And just as it is tied to the end of the age in Daniel 12, it is tied to the end of the age here in Matthew 24. Now here's perhaps the problem especially if you've been doing your homework and reading Luke and Mark, specifically Luke chapter 21, you might be saying, hold on a second. The events described in Luke 21, 20 through 24 sound a lot like those in Matthew 24, 16 and following. Sounds, but, but Luke makes it pretty clear, and it sounds a lot like this is what took place in 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem, not the end of the age in those events. And you're right, they do sound a lot alike. I mean, you have a warning for those in Judea to flee to the mountains in both cases. You see sympathy for those who are pregnant or nursing during this time. You see it's a terrible time and there is much loss of life. Those are the similarities. But I want to suggest that there are more differences than similarities at this point between Luke 21, 20 through 24 and Matthew. Luke 21, verse 20, opens by saying that when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, recognize that the desolation is near. As we've already stated, there, Daniel foretold there would be many desolations. Jesus even said there would be one in Matthew 35, 38. But here in Matthew 24, Matthew records Jesus is saying that it's when you see the abomination of desolation in the midst of the temple that it's time to run for the hills. The time to flee is different on these two accounts. One, do it when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, versus two, do it when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple. It's a pretty significant difference. Matthew provides additional warnings about those on a housetop not going to get anything in the house. Those in the field not going back for a cloak, praying that flight not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Now, you could say that Luke was just being selective. He, he didn't have time and space to record everything that Jesus said. So he provided a summary and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit chose not to include those warnings. And that's an entirely reasonable assertion. But it bears the burden of proof since you're arguing from the absence of something. And it becomes harder to assert that when you add to the list of dissimilarities that Luke discusses being led captive into all the nations. 
Whereas Matthew says the days of tribulation are cut short in verse 22. Luke talks about Jerusalem being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Matthew records that Jesus, or Matthew's record of what Jesus says, implies that this is the end. There is no time of the Gentiles. We see that more clearly a bit later in verse 29. Matthew describes a rescue that cuts short the great tribulation for the sake of the elect. Luke has no rescue. Jerusalem is destroyed. In light of these differences, I believe, and I, there's good and godly men who disagree, but I believe that Luke 21, 20-24 is providing Jesus' description of the events surrounding 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, the trampling underfoot, and the following and subsequent time of the Gentiles. Which, by the way, answers the only question that Luke records the disciples asking. When will the temple be torn down and what will be the signs? And now Jesus does provide some teaching on the end of the age in Luke. But its focus, the emphasis in Luke, I believe, is on the destruction of Jerusalem. In 70 AD. Matthew, on the other hand, is complimenting Luke, or you could say Luke is complimenting Matthew, since I think Luke followed Matthew. Matthew, on the other hand, is recording the answer to the other questions the disciples ask, or an emphasis on those questions. What will be the sign of the end of the age, and when will it happen? The similarities between these events have to do with the fact that one is foreshadowing the other. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., as horrible, horrendous, and grotesque as it was, is anticipating an even greater time of distress and judgment against Jerusalem. As Daniel said, abominations, plural, have been appointed for Jerusalem. And in Matthew 23, 36, Jesus makes it clear that that current evil generation would experience judgment, and he called it a desolation in 23, 38. But to avoid any confusion, Jesus is careful to clarify that what happens to this generation in 70 AD is not the abomination of desolation that occurs at the end. Matthew even calls on the reader to take note of this in 24.15. All right, catch your breath. Let's see if we can get through a few more verses before stepping back and drawing out some of the implications for this morning. I want to make a brief observation on the use of great, the Great Tribulation by Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 21. This term is used in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14 to describe a tribulation and persecution of God's people in the midst of God pouring His wrath out on an unbelieving world. In Matthew 24, we actually have different tribulations referenced than the Great Tribulation. And the Great Tribulation is differentiated from the tribulation described up in verse 9 by the word great. In addition, verse 21 says it will be a persecution without equal in the world, further distinguishing it from the other tribulations that verse 9 describes. And it's interesting, a similar description is found in Daniel 12, verse 1, where we read about an unparalleled time of distress. And I won't comment further than to repeat in brief what we saw a couple weeks ago. The trials and tribulations we have now are merely the birth pangs leading up to the great tribulation. But this is again where we are reminded of Jesus' instruction in verse 6 to not be frightened. 
do not be dismayed. Because we will be preserved. That is, we cannot lose our eternal life or fellowship with Christ no matter what may come in this life. That's the encouragement that we have. Paul says it really well in Romans 8. He says a lot of things really well in Romans. 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 22 concludes by noting that for the sake of those chosen by God, the great tribulation would be cut short. But because there would be many tribulations and birth pangs leading up to the great tribulation, verse 23 returns us to where Jesus began in verse 4. Do not be misled and see to it that no one misleads you. Don't be confused by these things. Verses 23 and 26 are a repeated reminder not to be led astray by false Christs and false prophets. It's a call for discernment in light of the future, but it is a warning that is for today just as much as it was a warning for the disciples. Keep in mind that the term Christ is not just a proper name for Jesus. It became that. But Christ was a Greek translation of the word Messiah, Savior, Deliverer. A false Christ, then, is simply someone who claims to be a Deliverer or a Savior and is not. This could be spiritual, it could be political, or it could speak to some other area of life. Similarly, a false prophet is someone who claims to speak for God when they do not. We must learn to carefully evaluate what we are taught to ensure it aligns with Scripture. And this is not just the responsibility of your Sunday school teachers, your preachers. Each of us are to be students of God's Word. You don't get to leave that up to the preacher or the Bible teacher. You have a responsibility to know God's Word, to study it and to know what is true and what is false. Paul commends the Bereans for eagerly receiving the teaching. In other words, we don't do it with skepticism and a desire to try and find out where somebody messed up. Eagerly, excitedly, but carefully running it through Scripture to ensure that what was said was true and right and good. And we are to be careful and discerning to not be captivated by those who claim to speak for God or those who claim they can deliver us. We are to be aware of those who create cult-like followings. Notice that frequently they'll be accompanied by miracles and wonders. Miracles by themselves are not a measurement of faithfulness to God or true teaching. But none of this should distract us from our mission. We are to be busy proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, loving God, loving others until we are either called home or he returns. And we note, too, that his return is not subtle, so we should not be deceived. Verses 27 and 28 state that the glorious return of Christ will be unmistakable. 
just as lightning lights up the sky. Notice it says, from the east to the west. That is the entire sky lights up. So too, with the return of Christ. Just as the lightning is announced, announces itself with thunder, so too the return of Christ will be unmistakable. It will be visible. It will be loud. It will be undeniable. Now verse 28 is a bit enigmatic. It's clearly a parable to the unmistakable and undeniable nature of Christ's return, but now it's compared to a vulture, and that's a bit unique. And I've seen several options suggested for this word picture. We understand what it means, but sometimes it's helpful to try and pick it apart. The one that really makes the most sense, at least at this time in my study, is that it's impossible for humanity to not see the coming of the Son of Man, just as it is not possible for vultures to ever miss a corpse to feed upon. They never miss the opportunity. Any corpse will catch their eye. It's a bit of a macabre picture, but it gets your attention. When Christ returns, there will be no question, and all of humanity will recognize and flock to it. There's a lot of details in these verses. And I've probably left you with a lot of unanswered questions, maybe frustrated you a bit. There's a lot of rabbit trails we could go down. But for us sitting here this morning, I want in our remaining time together, I want us to return to Jesus' final words on this earth before his ascension in Acts 1, 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Sumeria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. There Jesus tells his disciples, it's, it's not for you to know the exact timing. Just as he didn't answer the disciples' question explicitly on the timing, he gave them some of the signs so they would not be dis misled or deceived, but he does not answer their question of timing because it's not for them to know. He'll repeat this in a few, a few verses from where we left off this morning in Matthew 24. So Acts 1 is not the first time the disciples have heard it. So many of us, we have to hear our message again to get the point. But here's the question for each of us this morning when it comes to prophecy and Scripture. Are you more busy trying to figure out the time of His return or preparing for His return? If you find yourself spending more time listening or reading to persons trying to figure out the timing of Christ's return, stop. Jesus has said it will be obvious when he returns, and he said it's not for you to know. In fact, your actions beg these questions. Why are you fighting God on this? Why are you trying to figure out what is only known to the Father? One of the frustrations I have with many dispensationalists is the fascination they have with timelines and charts, and trying to explain how modern-day events correspond to biblical prophecy, and trying to guess or project when Christ will return. I remember going to one church probably 15, 20 years ago, 
It's a big church. Um, the pastor was preaching, and he stepped aside, and all of a sudden, from one end of the stage to the other, and this was a big stage, this massive chart rises from the floor. They began to explain the timelines. Now, not every chart is wrong. Some of them are very helpful for us. But all the way back in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote and said that while God has set eternity upon the heart of man, he's also made it so that man cannot know the end from the beginning. And Jesus, both in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, repeats that it is not for us to know the specific time. When we constantly try to figure it out, it shows that we don't really trust him and we aren't really taking him at his word. Another danger is that when you're wrong, just as those who claimed in the 70s and 80s that Jesus would return at a specific date, it undermines your credibility and worse, makes persons think you're a liar. Additionally, probably more importantly, it's a distraction from loving your neighbor and from proclaiming the gospel. Christ did not say that the second greatest commandment was figuring out the time of his return. When the Lord returns, he's not going to commend those who did the best job charting out the days of his return. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He will look to those who have been faithful in loving God, loving others, and will say, well done to them. There's another very practical reason why we should not be overly occupied with the timing of Christ's return. So, so that we are not deceived and misled. Those who are preoccupied with the timing of Christ's return are often, not always, but often more susceptible to false teaching. Now notice I said the timing of Christ's return. I didn't say with Christ's return. As believers, we should eagerly anticipate, long for, hope for, look for his return. For the glorious reign of Christ. We should pray for it. But at the same time, we should be busy making sure the house is in order. Matthew 25 presents parables around the importance of our activity and our lives now as we look forward to the kingdom of Christ. We're going to be spending some time there in the weeks to come. And I asked this question as we started this morning, are you ready for Christ's return? For some of you, in a room of this size, you have likely not even started to get ready. You have not recognized the weight of your sin. You have not confessed your sin. You have not cried out to God to save you from the wrath that is to come. Understand this, that as bad as the tribulation or the great tribulation or any of the events described in Scripture are, as horrific as the butchering and slaughter and starvation and cannibalism were of 70 A.D., hell and the wrath of God, if you have not repented of your sins, is far worse. Do not leave this morning without repenting of your sin, turning to the Lord, and experiencing His great mercy and compassion. And for those who have repented, who call yourself disciples of Jesus Christ, does your life look like you're ready for Christ's return? What areas are ready? These are good introspective questions. What are areas are ready? What areas need work? What are you doing to start getting those areas of your life together? How are you disciplining yourself for the sake of godliness? 
Donald Whitney has an excellent book entitled Godly Disciplines. I highly recommend it. But all of this means nothing if you're not working on loving God and loving Christ. Otherwise, it's just show. And maybe it sounds a little strange to you to talk about working on loving God. I mean, shouldn't love just come naturally? Doesn't it just happen? Shouldn't I just feel it? It's true you can't actually manufacture love. There's a lot you can do to prepare yourself for it. Just like the farmer can't manufacture crops, he can sure do a lot to prepare. You can spend time with the Lord in prayer and in reading his word. It's really hard to love someone you don't spend much time with or you don't know much about. You can pray more regularly to him. Take every day to think through his provisions just for that day alone, over your life, over your children, over your grandchildren. When you see the ways in which someone is regularly providing for you, it's hard not to love them. Confess your sin. Sin is one of the greatest hindrances to love, both in our personal relationships as well as our relationships with God. Give thanks then for God's forgiveness. Take the time to recognize how ugly my sin is, your sin is, and be reminded that Christ died for those sins. That's how we help cultivate a love for Christ. It's a lot packed in these verses. It's a lot to take in this morning. But I hope it serves to motivate you to love God and to love others as you look forward to the glorious return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminders we have had this morning. The reminders of not being misled, of not being deceived, of focusing our attention, our gaze upon that author and perfecter of our faith. Father, help us to be so heavenly minded that we are of much earthly good. Help us to long for that day, to prepare in light of that day, to live in light of that day. Father, help us to be quick to repent of our sin. Help us to get do away with anything and everything that hinders our relationship with you, that causes the coals of our affection to grow dim. Father, we pray this morning that you would continue to work in us, that your spirit would guide us and to teach us, to instruct us, and that we would continually give thanks for you, not just one day a year, but we would give thanks in all things. In your name, amen. Let's stand as we sing together.